being that we are focused on children's ministry here today, I thought that I would do a, a, a Bible passage about superheroes. Well, there aren't any superheroes aside from Jesus in the Bible, but the next closest I found was the stories of David's mighty men, which fits in our series of David. These mighty men, this passage about the mighty men of David, these are his best and strongest warriors. And this passage comes at the end of David's life. We've just got a couple passages left for us to examine in the life of David before we wrap up the series. And so we're looking at these stories of these men in, in David's life who served him and did so in incredible ways. Before I begin, I do need to give credit to a man by the name of Ed Clowney, who is a scholar pastor who died a few years ago. And I heard a sermon that Ed Clowney preached on this passage uh, more than a decade ago, and it was so indelibly impressed upon my mind that I have not been able to understand this passage of Scripture apart from what Clowney said. So if there is any insight that you gain from this message today, any insight into exposition, it is completely and wholly because of Ed Clowney, and I totally give him the credit for that unto God. Now, let us turn our attention to 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 17, the focus of it. But Before we jump into this passage, we're going to see some verses before, just to get the flavor of who these mighty men and these ultimate warriors of David were. So you can see these guys, that these guys were like the original CrossFit game winners. I mean, these guys were the original studs, original champions. Here we go. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. All right, say it with me. Joshua Bashabeth, a Talakamanite, and he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. That means that he was holding it so tightly for so long he couldn't let go of it because his muscles and tendons had seized. And he clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi the Herite. The Philistine gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the, med f- and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, and he defended it, and he struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. This guy, Shammah, I mean, he is like, uh, you know, he is not going to tolerate any sort of pilfering Philistine band to come take the lentils of an Israelite farmer. I mean, this guy was the original Gandalf standing up against the bull rag. You shall, none shall pass. Flee, you fools, right? I mean, this is, he is standing there and he is defending this field of lentils. All right. After that, we get into the story that we're focusing on today. And three of the 30, that is another three, of the 30 chief men went down, and they came about harvest time to David at the cave of Agilom, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then 
the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew out water of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they carried it and they brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord, and he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. And then the chapter goes on to describe a man by the name of Benaniah, who saw a lion in a pit, and he said, I'm going to kill that. And he jumps into the pit, and he slays the lion, and other various feats of strength that these mighty men do. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's blessing upon it. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. Lord, we thank you for the way that you worked in these mighty men, that you generated such surprising devotion from them. And Lord, you did. They served you greatly, but you accomplished the victory. Lord, help us to understand the work of your grace, even in our own lives today, we pray. Amen. You consider the stories of these mighty men. I mean, it is remarkable. I mean, their devotion to King David, the anointed one. I mean, they had surprising devotion, spontaneous, surprising devotion to their king. These mighty men of David were men who excelled in their craft. They were warriors, and they fought. And they fought well, and they fought hard. They excelled in fighting for their king. They excelled in faithfulness to their king. And the text repeatedly tells us that they fought hard, and the Lord brought about a victory. They fought hard. They fought well. They fought for the Lord. And yes, it, would get, it was their raw, daring courage that was the means. But it was the Lord who brought about the victory in every case. It is worth noting here for a moment that while we are never called to exalt man over God, the Word of God does not hesitate to commend and memorialize individual people, men and women, who did great work for the Lord. It doesn't hesitate to commend them and to give glory to God for what he did through these people. But let's dive back into the story. The time frame now is that Saul, this is earlier in the reign of David, Saul is king. He is trying to kill David, and David is hiding in a cave. And David's got another problem, because not only is Saul trying to kill him and pursue after him, but there are Philistines, the archenemy of the people of God. Philistines are everywhere. They're all around him. There's a band of them camped out in the valley. There's a garrison of Philistines in Bethlehem. Everywhere they go, there are Philistines all over the place. This is like, this is like mosquitoes at Point Lookout in August, right? Mosquitoes are everywhere. Everywhere that his men went, there were Philistines all, all around. As they're standing there, David begins musing. And he says, oh, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. You know, David's been living in a cave with his men in a desert. I imagine that he's thirsty. And it's not uncommon for people to long for the taste of water from a particular source. In my childhood, it was the water that came out of the faucet of the pink bathroom sink in the upper portion of my parents' house. There was no water as refreshing as the water that came out of that sink. And so if I was playing outside, running around hot and sweaty, and I come in to get a drink, there was only one place I wanted to go, which was to rush up the stairs to 
touch my sweaty little face all over that faucet and just to drink deeply of the refreshing water out of the pink bathroom faucet. For David, it was the water at the well of Bethlehem. Now, when David gives these words, he's not giving a command. He is just simply amusing. Oh, wouldn't that be great? It probably did not occur to David that anybody would, any person would actually take his words seriously and act on his words. But no sooner had the words left his mouth than the men are on it. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and they drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and they carried it and brought it back to David. You hear what King David wants? If he wants water from Bethlehem, we'll go get him water from Bethlehem. David's wish was their command. Surprising devotion, is it not? Spontaneous devotion. Let's do this. So they strap on their swords, they get a little bottle of water, they take an empty canteen, and they head off. Now, they head off to go to the well at Bethlehem. What are some of the things that the text told us about this? Well, there are Philistines everywhere. Not only that, but the garrison of the Philistines has headquartered themselves at Bethlehem. And the place where the commanders would set up their command center is right in front of the well at Bethlehem, because that's where all the troops would come and go to refill their water supply. So these men are heading into the command center of the garrison of the Philistines that are occupying Bethlehem. So to get the water, these mighty men would have to fight for it. So after hiking the 13 miles towards Bethlehem, they climbed up the hill to Bethlehem or went up the hill to Bethlehem where surely they would have been recognized and challenged. And at that point, they then hack their way through the Philistine line, get the water, hack their way back out of the Philistine line, exit the city, and 13 miles later, they come to David and they say to him, your water, sir. You know, what love these men, these mighty men had for their leader. I mean, it's surprising devotion. I mean, it's shocking devotion that these men had for their leader. I mean, these mighty men were not just loyal, they were devoted. And they were sacrificially devoted to their king. These three, even in the midst of it, as the beginning of the passage tells us, they left their own fields during harvest time, which would provide food for their family, and they went out to join David. They were devoted to him, surprisingly devoted to him, and devoted to his service. And they did so willingly and spontaneously whenever they saw a need that needed to be met. Sometimes it's not uncommon that I'll be talking with um, some friends of mine who are not Christians, or I'm talking with non-Christian family members, and they'll be asking about what I do and what church is like. Most people usually avoid that conversation with me who are not Christians, but occasionally I talk to people who are interested. And they're like, so what's that like? What do you do? What does your church do? So I begin to describe it, and I describe the various ministries that we have, and our children's ministries, and our outreach ministries, and our service in our community, and different things. And they usually, it's not uncommon that they'll respond like this. They'll say something like, wow, you have a lot of volunteers. I would not want your job. I wouldn't like having to have your job where you would have to do so much arm twisting and so much coercion to get people to do things and to get people to serve. I would hate your job. Sometimes the church has been characterized as a, like a football game, a professional football game, 
where there are 22 men who are desperately needing rest, surrounded by 44,000 ravenous fans who desperately need exercise. (laughs) But both of those pictures are just not true. At least they're not true here at Cornerstone, fortunately. And then I look around this room, and I think as you saw Janice talking earlier about what's going on in our children's ministry, it's just one section of our, of our ministry here at Cornerstone. There are many people in this church, I mean many, many people in this church, who put in hours of willing and joyful service. Why? Because they're devoted to their King Jesus. And they want to advance the mission that God has given us to bring the hope and the peace and the good news of Jesus to this community, to the world, and to pass it on to the next generation. There's many people in our church who joyfully do that. It's a great blessing. And sure, you know, of course, is it a lot of work to all the logistics and recruitment of people? And do we still need some adult Sunday school teachers in our company? Yeah, yeah, we do, but we won't mention that right now. But sure, there's a lot of work to make that happen. But the thing that is surprising is that there is such willing service for the Lord, of people who who their service is surprising in the devotion that they give, who is surprising in how joyfully and at times spontaneously they are willing to to serve the Lord and to serve the Lord through through this body, and they do so because they are devoted to their King Jesus and they willingly serve him. Now, of course, yes, if someone's king isn't Jesus the response is quite different. If someone's king, what they live for, what they worship is themselves. If they live for and worship their own peace, their own comfort, they're not happy to serve. If they're asked, they grumble, they complain, I don't want to do this, why do I have to do this, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that happens, and quite frankly, we don't want those people to serve. We don't want them to. Namely, because there's something, if this is you, there's something that you need to get right in your life first. And the thing you need to get right in your life is who is your king, and who do you worship? And who was number one in your life? And that's what's most important. And if that's not where you are, we're glad that you're here. We want you to grow in this type of thing. There's a time for service at some other point. But we don't want grumbling service. Because that's not who the servants of the King Jesus really are. So what happens, though, is that for individual people, is that, is that people and, and Christians know is that there is no joy in living for yourself. It's kind of this irony. You think, if I get to do what I want, I'll have more joy, but it's actually just the opposite. If I live for myself, I'll have more joy, but actually it takes it away and it robs it. There's no joy in living for yourself, but there is great joy in living in service to King Jesus. And it's remarkable, because I think what Scripture shows us is that the surprising devotion, spontaneous, willful devotion, is actually what Jesus expects of his followers. It's actually what Jesus expects of people who have experienced his grace. Consider this one story where Jesus heals ten lepers. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, Samaria, the area of half-breeds that the Jews hated. And he entered a vis- as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And they lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. They weren't cleansed at his word. They were cleansed as they went in faith to the priests. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, 
giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Did Jesus command any of the lepers to return and to worship him? Did he command any of them to give him gratitude and thanks? He didn't. But quite clearly, he expected it. He expected that they would respond with gratitude. He expected that they would respond to his grace and what he has done spontaneously within them, that their recognition of Jesus' grace in their life and his lordship, he expected them to willingly and spontaneously respond to him and to come back and to give him praise and to worship him. And to live their life in light of his grace out of what God has done for them. He didn't command it, but he expected it. Surprising devotion. It should happen. Spontaneous devotion. It should happen. This passage actually follows Jesus' teaching um, in a couple of the couple of verses before where Jesus talks about one of his servants. About a servant. And he gives the, a parable and he says this. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in the field? Come at once and recline at the table. What's his point? Will any of you, if you have a servant, will you say to your servant, hey, you've done a little bit, it's now time for you to relax and enjoy life and what have you? He goes on and says, will he not rather say to him, will the master not say to his servant, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he commanded them to do? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, you say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done, we've only done what was our duty. What's Jesus' point? Is that he's like, he's, he is, Jesus didn't command reluctance, obedience for someone in the, in the fulfillment of a servant's duty. Rather, the servant here is simply doing what he should do. And so too, as well for each Christian, Jesus doesn't ask, for reluctant obedience. He doesn't ask for reluctant grumbling obedience. In fact, he doesn't want reluctant grumbling obedience simply in fulfillment of your duty. Why? Because Jesus says, what is expected of us? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your mind and to love the Lord your God with all your strength. What does that mean? Is that those who bow the knee that Jesus is their king Those who acknowledge and have experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life, what's he looking for? He is looking for those that know that and experience that. He is looking for spontaneous, sacrificial, willful, joyful devotion because of his grace and because Jesus is king. What does that look like? Well, it's kind of like Jesus is somewhat expecting that we would surprise God, if you will by bringing him a canteen of water from Bethlehem when he muses about it. It's a surprising devotion from those who have experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What may be a bit more shocking in this passage, though, is not just the surprising devotion of the mighty men, but the surprising response of David to their devotion. Here's what happens. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it, 
he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. David is utterly surprised by their devotion. He is shocked by their devotion. And so they bring him his canteen of water, and David says, I can't believe this. And he takes it out and he dumps it on the ground. Are you kidding me? Like, for real? After all they went through, hacking their ways through the Philistines, getting the thing of water, turning around and coming back, are you serious? He takes the thing, dumps it on the ground, and for a few seconds the water puddles up before it is absorbed into the arid desert and gone forever? For real? Is this really what he's going to do to the gift that they bring him? Well, David does exactly the right thing. Because the text tells us that David just didn't simply pour it out but rather that David poured it out to the Lord. He gave it to the Lord. Is that David um, does this, and the, the Israelites would have understood this, and actually the mighty men would have understood what David was doing, because there is this thing in the temple practices of something called a drink offering. And a drink offering was that people brought the best that they had, the best wine that they had, and that drink would be literally poured out to the Lord as a sign of worship to God. And to David, the water that was contained in that canteen was the very blood of the men who risked their lives to get it. And David understood that for him to drink it, it would be to take their blood and their devotion lightly. And David cherished their devotion. And because he cherished their devotion, he must give it in worship to the Lord. And he pours it out before the Lord because David is in so doing saying, I am not worthy of the blood of these men. And the devotion that they have given to me is not devotion to me, but it is devotion to the Lord. And this offering that they bring belongs to the Lord as an act of worship to him. And by doing so, David actually honored their service and their sacrifice. How different David's response was than so many leaders today, is it not? So the response of leaders towards those that have devoted themselves to the leaders of their followers. How different David's response, for example, than many cult leaders. Consider you know, famously Jim Jones in California. He has his band of followers fly over to Guyana. And at his command, recording it on television, he commands them all to drink poison, which they all do, and most of them die. You consider a couple years ago, the Heaven's Gate cult, when the Hale-Bopp comet was coming around, and how he gathered them all together, and when the comet was over flying by, he had them all, commanded them all to commit suicide, and all of the followers committed suicide, and he did as well. How different a response of David towards his followers, is it not? How different David's response is than, how about a modern news example of than the caliphate, which takes 12-year-old children and turns them into suicide bombers, and who use women and children as body shields to protect themselves. How different King David's response as one who knew that he was unworthy of such devotion and who also knew that any devotion to him was truly devotion to the Lord for the Lord's sake. 
Similarly, any Christian leader knows that anybody who is serving and serving in their ministry area is not serving them, but is doing so in devotion to the Lord and in service to the Lord. How different David's response, is it not? And yet, how much more different than David is the devotion of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is shocking about the Lord Jesus Christ, what is surprising about him, is not so much our devotion to him and the things that God does through people who are devoted to him. What is shocking is King Jesus' devotion to us. You see, in Jesus, Jesus was devoted to his heavenly Father. And in love and in devotion to his heavenly Father, Jesus, God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus became the mighty warrior who breaks through the garrison of darkness to bring us water from the well at Bethlehem, if you will. But for Jesus Christ, what he did in coming through here and breaking through the garrison of darkness was not to get a canteen of water at the risk of his blood, but rather to work for us, as he says, the cup of the new covenant in his blood, paid for with his blood poured out on the cross, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ is the mighty warrior who stormed the gates of sin and hell and death, giving up his own life. And as the king, he does not demand your life for his, but rather gives his life for yours. And as Peter reminds us, therefore, you are not your own. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, and that price is the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you know his devotion. I truly hope that you know the devotion of King Jesus and the devotion that he has for you. And maybe you're here today and you don't know that. I'd love to sit down and share that with you. Because there is great joy in living life devoted to King Jesus. And there is an even greater joy in knowing the devotion that King Jesus has for you. In experiencing the devotion that King Jesus has for you. And if you have experienced that, what I do truly hope is that I hope that you have experienced and will experience his grace in such a profound way. I hope that you experience and know his devotion to you so deeply and so intimately that your life spontaneously, surprisingly, like the Samaritan leper, like the mighty men of old, that your life would be spontaneously and surprisingly and willfully and joyfully filled with gratitude and sacrificial devotion to your King Jesus. I hope it so fills you that the devotion generated within you is so great, is so Grant that when you get an inkling in your mind that King Jesus wants a drink of water, you say, come on, let's strap on our swords and go to Bethlehem and get him some water. May your service be filled with joy. May your life be filled with joyful, sacrificial, willing, surprising, spontaneous devotion. 
to the one and only King Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would continue to overwhelm us with your devotion. And by your spirit, Lord, as we experience your grace and as we experience your devotion to us, Lord, that your spirit would work in us surprising, spontaneous, willful, joyful devotion to you. Lord, there's some of us here who quite frankly just need to confess that we've been living selfishly for the building of our own kingdoms. And we need to confess our grumbling, complaining hearts to you. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would take that confession and wash us afresh with your grace and move us to live in joyful devotion to you and service to our King Jesus, the mighty warrior who broke the gates of hell, who took the punishment of sin, who broke the bonds of death that we might be set free, not demanding our lives, but giving his life in place. Lord, may his devotion for us spur us on in joyful, spontaneous devotion to you. In his name we pray, amen.